I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3 towards the end, and we're going to head into Romans 3 and a little bit into Romans 4. If you're visiting with us, I want to catch you up to speed. We started Romans in the fall, kind of took a hiatus, and we've just jumped back into it. And if you don't know Romans, uh, I'd invite you to get out your Bible, whether it's text or on your phone or whatever. Um, Paul has started this book. There's 16 chapters in Romans, and the first chapter and the second chapter and half of the third, Paul has this objective to try to explain uh, the, what the whole message of, of Jesus is about. And, and so he takes this letter, it's a comprehensive explanation. And so he takes his time explaining this. So chapter one, two, and, and half of three is explaining why do do we need Jesus? Why is this all set up so that Jesus has to come? And, and he talks about how all have sinned, every Gentile. So any person who's not a Jew is called a Gentile. So all have sinned. No one is righteous. All will be held accountable for every decision that they've made, Jew or Gentile. That's the first thing, and he gets kind of in hot water already with, with the Jews, and, and he's writing primarily to Jew, and he is a, a Jew, but they always have felt like they're, they're better than, and chapter one, two, and half of three, he says, no, you're, we're all lumped in this together. There, there's no one righteous. And, and we talked about how that was the dirge. That was the heavy song, the, the funeral song. Oh, death, judgment are come, is coming. And then in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, which we've covered here in the last couple weeks, Paul says, but now, and he says, there's a righteousness solution, and here comes the dance song, right? He says, there's a righteousness from God, it's available to any who would believe. So all are justified now by grace through faith in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Boom, dance song best song ever played ever, right? This is a song of celebration. This is a song of salvation. And Paul gets in trouble now because now he's saying it's apart from law. And, and the, Jew, the Jewish community is like, what? You can't be apart from law. You got and, and they start getting all like worked up. And so Paul, knowing what he has just done here, he's about to lose his Jewish audience who are, are hearing this letter read then goes on to write three or four or five questions here that he's heard over the years. And he, and he says this, so you could follow along with me. And he, he tries to anticipate. He says, so where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man or a woman is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Another question, is God the God of the Jews only? Paul counters back. No, not only the Jews only, or yes, of the Gentiles too, right? Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who justifies the circumcised by faith, meaning all the people of Israel by faith, and the uncircumcised, meaning all the Gentiles, by that same faith. Here's another question. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Just finished reading a book by a guy named Eric Metaxas. 
the title of the book was Martin Luther, and it's the biography of Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights activist, but Martin Luther, 1500s, lived 500 years ago guy. And uh, Martin Luther, if you don't know, he's credited with starting the, the, what you would call the Protestant Reformation. Now, he didn't set out to do that at all, but that's just kind of how history does it. You put it on one guy, and, and it kind of grows from there. And it started when he posted 95 theses or reformations he felt the church needed to make. And he just goes, he went down to the local community little, you know, bulletin board and just nailed them up there. And it happened to be on the church doors. A lot of people did that. What he didn't understand is what that would do, the repercussions along the way and how it blew up. But what was interesting is you read through his story when he's at seminary studying to be a monk, seminary, right? Uh, there's a bunch of people there studying to go into ministry to, to, to be monks or priests or however they, they fall out. He was the only one who read the Bible. They actually made fun of him for reading the Bible. Now, granted, it was in Greek and Latin, so it was a little bit more unaccessible, in, in that sense, or inaccessible, but they would make fun of him. And, and, and actually, when you look at history, most of the monks and the priests going into ministry, most of them really didn't study the Bible at all. They would study Aristotle. Imagine, not just decades, but centuries and a millennia, more than a millennia, of the church and the leaders not even knowing the Bible. So when you get to Martin Luther, there's been a thousand years of spiritual decline, more than a thousand years of spiritual decline, and you can read the stories of the papacy and how messed up the papacy was. And I'm not here saying the Roman Catholic Church, this is our church. This is our church history. This isn't just theirs. This, we're all in on this stuff. This is our people. The church was a mess because they didn't know the word, which is scary. What happens when we're not grounded in the word of God? And Martin Luther was living in, in, under the definition of what salvation meant and how the church had twisted it. And it twisted and twisted until it would become salvation is by works. And Martin Luther was trying to get to heaven by works. And, and he would come in, his confessionals were famous. He absolutely annoyed the priests he confessed to. Because he would come in an hour after hour after hour, confess every little false thought, every little bad motive, every this, every that. And the guy finally, after like hearing this over and over, Martin, would you just come back with a real sin? Like go out and kill somebody and then come back in and confess it. Quit confessing all this meaningless stuff. But Martin was saying, if I got to be justified by works, then that means I got to make sure I'm clean. Which is impossible. And he talks about that moment when he began to read the Bible in plain Greek. It's right there. And he got to Romans. And he started reading, not just once, but over and over and over again, justified by faith. Justified by faith. And he's going, what? This isn't what I've been taught? Justified by faith? That's not what we're... This is so plain, it's so obvious. And the, the cry of the Protestant Reformation was sola fide, faith alone. Is that right, Latin? I just, 
Sola fide, right? Okay, we got Latin expert here. I'm, I'm going to do some referencing over here. Zoldos, we got it. Um, Jonathan, we're good. No, yeah, David, Jonathan. Sorry. Family over here, two boys. I'm off track. I'm just going to get back on. So, sola fide. So, everybody say sola fide. Sola that's the cry of the Protestant Reformation, which came out of Romans, right here, sola fide. Now, keep in mind, as Paul's now writing, let's jump back into Romans, he's in the final years of his ministry. He's in his third, actually winding down his third missionary trip. He's been around a while. He's heard and seen it all. He's been preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus and faith in Jesus. And so he's heard all the arguments and all the rebuttals. And, and what you see is Paul trying to anticipate and knowing he's going to lose his audience. That's why he writes these questions and says, hey, guys, slow down. Slow down. I get it. We've got to talk through these things. You've got questions. Here are some of the ones I know you're thinking about. And he takes the rest of Romans to begin to explain these things. So chapter 4, which we have chapter 4, but Paul didn't write it as chapter 4. There were no numbers back then or chapters. He just wrote it as this letter. So he says, you know, does this now nullify faith? No, not at all. And he goes into verse 1. He says, what then did Abraham, our forefather, discover in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by faith, he had something to boast about but not before God. What's important to understand is Paul right here does something that is brilliant. He goes to the big deal, Abraham. I mean, God is the biggest deal. Abraham's a big deal. He's the patriarch of Israel. And if Paul can connect his teaching by Scripture to, from Christ and, and sola fide over to Abraham, he's won the argument. It has to come in Scripture. So it's a brilliant move. He's going back to Abraham where this all started. Abraham, A.B. Simpson called him the Columbus of faith. A.B. Simpson, the founder of our denomination. And what happened is in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and just chooses Abraham because he wants to choose Abraham. And he promises to Abraham, I am going to make, I'm going to give you a family line. This family line is ultimately going to become a nation, and this nation is going to ultimately bless this world. Genesis 12. And, and that's where it all starts with Abraham. Years go by, we get to chapter 15 of Genesis. Abraham's talking with God, and he's saying, God, look, you, you gave this promise, nothing's happened, what's up? And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, it says this, you see this up on the screen, God, and he, God, took Abraham outside and said, look at the heavens, count the stars. I, I wonder if they waited. Because Abraham had said, what's up with the promise? And God says, just look up there. Count the stars. If you can. Which you can't. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. His answer was interesting. Just look at the stars. I'm telling you right now, this is what your family line is going to be like. 
And Abraham believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, credited it to him as righteousness. Credited it to him as righteousness. See, this moment is huge. Abraham believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. This moment is it. This is the, the, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses, inspired by God to, to write these words. It's in their scripture. And he's saying, look here, this is where this all started. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. God went and deposited righteousness in Abraham's account just simply because he believed. What? And this word credit, as you look through Romans chapter 4, circle this word. I, I give you permission. This is the biggest word of Romans chapter 4. It happens 11 times. Credit, 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 all over the place. And what's credit? It, it, kids, if you have a piggy bank and you ever put money in your piggy bank, when you put money in it, cha-ching, right, and you shake it, your money in there, grown-ups call credit. It's confusing. Don't ask me why but it's in there. So you got money in your account. Now what Jesus is saying is when you have faith, when Abraham had faith, God put spiritual money in the account. In fact, he took out all the bad stuff and he put in all his good stuff. He credited it to him. Yeah, praise Jesus. What's interesting is this accounting term started back with Abraham and the nation of Israel had lost it. And this is a human condition. Somehow we lose this truth. Israel lost it. They had it in their word and somehow they perverted the truth and, and they became this system of works and everything. And, and, and it, the salvation message got lost of salvation by faith alone. And you see it in the, in, in the church after Christ where now we're coming and we've got the word and, and still it gets perverted and it's into works. And Paul says... This. It starts with Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But it's, it's interesting. He says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He goes on now to say, now when a man works or a woman works, his wages or her wages are credited to him or her as an obligation, not as a gift. Now, stop right here because Paul pulls in a universal principle. It's true no matter what continent you're on, no matter what era you've lived in. This is a universal principle. A worker deserves his wages. A worker deserves her wages. I don't care where you go in this world, on this planet. That's a truth. And when somebody pays you for your hard-earned work, you don't go back home putting it in the account going, well, they're just such a good gift giver. They're just so generous. No, you go, I earned that money. They owed it to me. And, and you put it in with a fair amount of satisfaction. That was my hard-earned money. A worker 
deserves his or her wages. That's a universal, timeless principle. The problem is this universal principle bleeds in to our spirituality. And here's the problem. We can get to the point where we start to bring this in and say, oh, look at me, I work so hard, God owes me. He owes me. That's what Paul's saying here, right? When a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. But he had just said up there, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about before God. So there's this work like pride, look at me, I deserve this, you owe me God. Now, in the philosopher realm, or philosophers talk about this thing, if you want to have like a good conversation that actually makes sense, there's rules to it. So uh, rules being, there's, there's logic. You've got to have logic. So uh, kids, or this is like redneck for, it's got to make sense, right? So there's logic, good reasoning, and there's got to be principles so that we all understand each other's. So as, as you go through this, you have to have good reasoning, something that makes sense. And they've, they've created a whole list of things that, that are called logical fallacies, things that don't make sense in, in an argument if you're trying to make your case. And they make a list of them. So for, for instance, there's a, a logical fallacy called ad hominem. Is that right? That's Latin. Um, which means basically attack the person. In redneck, it's why you hating. Attack the person, then you don't have to attack the argument. Watch how much that happens in our news. People destroy each other, and yet you never actually hear the argument, and you never actually get into an engagement of what is actually the core things going on here. Just destroy each other. Just call each other's names, and you don't have to listen to them ad hominem or why you hating is a logical fallacy. Don't make sense. There's another one that's going on in this passage and actually in the minds of people and their spirituality. And that one is the logical fallacy, the thing that don't make sense, called non sequitur. Good. I'm passing. I'm doing great on my Latin. Um, non sequitur means literally it does not follow. In redneck, that means that don't add up. So what does that mean? Well, kids, here we go. Bread was left out in the kitchen. Kid just went through the kitchen. Parents conclude what? Kid left the bread out. Kids, how many times have you been falsely accused? Raise your hands. I feel your pain. I feel your pain. You can now say, that don't add up. That's a logical fallacy, mom and dad. See, what's happening here is it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. I mean, that, that's the thing. It, well, unless you're the parent and you just call it like it is. Bread's out. Kid walked through there. I don't need no logic. They lift it out. And that's what we do. So here's the premise. Let's pull it back into Romans. He's saying a worker deserves his wages and they can brag about this before God, they think, but not really. But that's the logic of it. He says the premise is this. People deserve their wages, right? A worker deserves his wages. Premise one. Premise two. I work hard spiritually. 
Conclusion, God owes me. And Paul's saying, that don't add up. That's a logical fallacy. Premise A and B, do not make C. And this is what happens in our minds because it is a universal principle across all the, when you talk about a worker deserves our wages, it does bleed into our spirituality. And so what do we end up doing? We end up saying to God, well, look, look, I do the, the golden rule, right? I, I do right by people. I, I try to make all my good works outweigh my, my bad works. I pay my taxes. I haven't really broken the bad commandments. I, I was born in the Christian faith. I was born in Ohio. I'm American. I'm a spiritual worker who's working hard. God, you owe me. Put it in my account. I want to shake it and hear it. And Paul says, no, no. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies his wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. What? It just doesn't even make sense. However, to the man who trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as right. That just totally flies in the face of all that we know about spirituality in this world and what this world tells us. It tells us you can own it. And I know you guys, we all know Amazing Grace, and everybody says it's like the American hymn. You, you've heard that story. Chuck Swindoll actually wrote, rewrote the hymn. Chuck Swindoll is a famous preacher down south. And he rewrote the hymn because he's like, no, that's, that's not the American hymn. It may be the American song, but he says this is really the true words to, to this song. And it's not Amazing Works. It's, a, it's amazing, amazing Grace. It's Amazing Works. So I'm, I'm going to sing it to you. If you can go over there to that slide, yeah. I think we got time. So here he goes. He goes like this. Excessive works, how sweaty the sound, right? That came from the God in me. I once was bad, but now I'm good, thanks to my sincerity, right? T'was works that earned my place with God, and deeds that had made him smile, right? Sing it pretty, because we got to earn this. How long I toiled and proved my worth. And trudge that second mile, second mile. Key change, right? A little more dramatic. Last verse. When we've been there 10,000 years, being paid our hard-earned fun, we've no less days to sing our praise and boast of all we've done, right? <laughs> Opera man. But that's it, right? That's the hymn we love to sing. It's us. And he says, however, to the man who trusts God, the woman who trusts God, who justifies the wicked, their faith is credited to him as righteousness. And then he goes to the, another big deal guy, David. King David, that's why he's the big deal. He's the first king where God actually came. He's the second king, but he was the king that God said, because of your heart for me, I'm giving you a line of kings, an everlasting line of kings, which ultimately ended with Christ, who is now on the throne for all time in the future. A big deal. And he says this, David speaks of the blessedness 
of the man or woman to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. He says, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man or woman whose sin the Lord will never count against her or him. David writes this in the, in the greatest moment of wickedness right? He had abdicated his, his uh, we talked about this last week, he abdicated his governing of, of the nation, going with, leading the army, he, he commits adultery, he kills the man, uh, the husband of the woman he had just slept with, and he's unrepentant, he's hiding it, he gets confronted, and in the middle of the confrontation, God says, you will not die, your sin has been removed from you. And David, that scripture is Psalm 32, and 103 that Paul quotes. How is that? I mean, you have Abraham in the moment of this great promise. You have David in this middle of one of the most wicked moments of any human's life. And both are credited with righteousness. Like David, God comes over and just drops his righteousness in the piggy bank and shakes it. You hear that? You're righteous. By faith. Sola fide. And what's stunning about this is this whole idea of faith. And I know I skipped some slides here, and I want to come back to this because there, there's a piece that you don't have to come back to it on the slides. When Paul starts talking about this whole idea of spiritual terms and, and pulling works in, the reality is we don't, if we are trying to earn this, we don't really understand really in a comprehensive way what we're trying to do. Because if you want to work your way in, you've got to do it according to the law of God. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist denomination shortly after um, uh, yes, the other guy I was just talking about, Martin Luther. He wrote this. He said, the law of God is a harsh taskmaster. He says this, the law makes radical demands with no allowances for falling short. The covenant of works requires everyone fulfill every manner of righteousness, not only in perfect degree, but without interruption, obey or die. The law brings us to despair of our righteousness and gives us this readiness to trust in God's righteousness. We cannot possibly fulfill the law. Those who attempt to live by the law with utter seriousness live always on the edge of despair, always aware of radical inadequacies. You know, Martin Luther was a man who lived under depression because of this. If you really want to get serious, if someone really wants to get serious and earn their way to heaven, you have to go with the standard and you have to go all the way with it. And the reality is most of us in this world, actually this world, wants to dumb down the law of God, reduce it to some kind of a namby-pamby, toothless law that just kind of gives you a pat on the back. Oh, shucks, you'll get in. And that's not the law of God. 
Because what God is doing is saying, no, you're not going to pull me down. I am going to pull you up. I'm going to pull you up to the standard and show that you can't live, live in it and achieve it. Therefore, you need me. There's no boasting here. I'm going to strip you and rob you of your pride so that you see you need me. It'll be the best thing that ever happens. And what's amazing is he starts to pull Abraham in and he pulls David in. And this to me, I, I, Romans 4 has been the biggest surprise to me so far. I mean, I was looking forward to Romans 6 and 7 and 8, kind of got 5, Romans 12, and there's some cool stuff between 9, 10, 11. I mean, that's, that's good stuff too. I am so unprepared for what Romans 4 is teaching because Romans 4 is teaching that Abraham, Max Lucado said this, I love it, is a prototype of grace. Mac, uh, Abraham, Abraham was justified just like you and I are justified when we accept Christ as our Savior, right? He was justified in the same way. And yet the cross hadn't happened. What? David was justified just the same way as you have come and confessed your sins and been forgiven. David was, and he was, what, 900 years before the cross? 950? You know what that means about God's grace? It not only predates you and me, it predates Paul, it predates David, it predates Abraham. God's grace predates us all, every person, this whole world. And so when he comes in and people have sinned, he's like, I got the cross coming. You're forgiven, everybody before the cross. You're, you're all forgiven by faith and guess what? The cross on the other side is going to go back and cover you. And I got everybody that goes beyond the cross on the other side. That's amazing grace, right? And I want to close with this because he, this word, justification, if you are a Christ follower and you're serious about this, you need to own this word. Like this needs to be your word. Don't, don't have this thinking that, oh, that's only for guys who like study somewhere. Women who go off to school and study the Bible. This is a word every Christian needs to own it. You need to own this word. This is your word. Justification, what does it mean? It means this, simply. Write it down. Write it down somewhere in your Bible. A pardon. Forgiveness of sin. And, and by forgiveness of sin, that means all sin, whether it's thought, whether it's deed, word. All sin, whether you committed it knowingly or unknowingly. All sin, even the sin that you left the good on the table that you didn't even do kind of sin. All of it. Justification is forgiveness of all that sin. Where Christ comes in and, and he comes to our account and, and he he takes all, he wipes out all the debt. Like kids, imagine you in your piggy bank kept putting in, I owe mom and dad $10. I owe mom and dad $10. And I owe mom and dad $10. Well, if somebody asked you, how much do you have in your piggy bank, what would you tell them? 
Well, actually, I owe my mom and dad now $30 in my piggy bank. I have no money of my own. I actually am in debt. That's the way we are with God. And God comes in, he goes, oh, no, no. That debt's paid, gone, tears it up. <laughs> Takes the other $10 IOU, <laughs> gone. Another IOU, <laughs> gone. Now you're even. But God doesn't just stop there. He goes, now just wait. I'm going to throw my righteousness in your account. Boom. Dance song begins. Right? You have just been credited with God's righteousness. That's justification. Faith. Sola fide. What is faith? Faith is trusting. It's, it's true. We don't make it true. It is true. Faith is putting our trust in that. Faith is trusting the concept is true and living according to that. And faith, when it comes to the Christian life, is profoundly personal. It means this. Jesus, he did this for me. Jesus did this for you. Martin Luther was rocked. You talk about an account of his life. He said the moment he started reading Romans and he read justification by faith, the lights came on. The freedom came. He was a different man. So different, he starts just going to town and writing, the church needs to hear this, the world needs to hear this, and he sets this world on fire. Sola fide, justification by faith through grace in Jesus Christ. Some of you here this morning, um, you, you probably haven't tasted God's grace, maybe. And, and you're trying to discover what you believe, and, or maybe you're getting dragged here, but you really don't follow Christ. You're not necessarily against God, but uh, you may believe in God, but this isn't the same thing. Just believing God or believing there is a God is not the same thing as this. You're still not under God's grace. You still haven't made that decision, that faith decision. And I, wanna, I just want to encourage you, don't, don't walk out. Don't, don't walk out if you're not engaging with this. How are you going to get to heaven? Are you going to keep working at it? You won't get there. You can't earn it. It's only by faith in Jesus. And you may think that's just crazy, like impossible. How, how does that happen by faith that all of that wickedness and evil and judgment gets wiped out? Uh, yeah, it's crazy. It, it breaks the universal principles we love to hold on to that you deserve it. But that's Jesus and his amazing grace. And if some of you here are just, your heart's kind of like gotten hard and 
the sin is piled around you. And I just speak out of experience. I have had seasons in my life where uh, the sin just piles up. And I, I got to the point where I just, I can't talk to God about it. Like, I can't come back again. Not again. And, and that's a lie. That's a lie. Blessed is the woman and the man whose sins are covered. All you have to do and all I have to do is just come back to Jesus and go, Jesus, it's by faith. I don't deserve it. I can't brag. I can't boast. I can't earn. And he goes, I know. It's great, isn't it? Isn't that awesome? 